Specialty Story, session number 42. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. And welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. If this is the first time you are joining me, thank you for taking some time out of your day to put on your headphones, your earbuds, or plug me into the car and and listen on your commute to work or to school. We have a great interview today with a neurologist who specializes in neuromuscular medicine. She's in an academic setting for the last five years out of her fellowship training. We start the discussion with Dr. Vanessa Baute by talking about when she first became interested in neurology and neuromuscular medicine. When I was a medical student in neuroanatomy, I was completely blown away by cranial nerves, the complex, weird, you know, visual system. It was so challenging. Uh, And I tell students I teach, I'm like, I wasn't really good at it. It was just fascinating. And I loved it. And I could read about it and study it. And it didn't feel like work. And so really, that's where everything started. And then I would say the neuromuscular part evolved. I liked all of neurology, but it was one of those things where I really had some good mentors in the area of neuromuscular medicine and became friends with the section and just really liked the procedure part of it. I enjoyed doing procedures and the patient population, and there was a fellowship spot, you know, and then that that just kind of evolved into neuromuscular medicine. Uh, But I still see general neurology patients also and still do some inpatient um, work as well. What percentage of your practice do you think is specifically neuromuscular? At least half, probably like 75%. Okay, so a good chunk. Yeah, very, very good percentage. And I see a lot of patients with things like neuropathic pain, different forms of neuropathy, and other neuromuscular diseases like myasthenia gravis, um, some motor neuron, although we have a separate clinic uh, for ALS patients. So big variety. And that's, I like that too, that keeps work, you know and teaching exciting because I'm always seeing a different pathology and I always have something different to offer patients. Most people probably wouldn't think of neurology as a procedural specialty. What sort of procedures are you doing as a neuromuscular specialist? So I I have a different kind of mix because I really enjoy procedures. I also really enjoy patient counseling. So the procedures that I do uh, I always tell my patients, I love sticking needles in people, but when it comes to me, I'm a total wimp. I can't, I don't do well with needles in me, but, um, so I do occipital nerve blocks, uh, with ultrasound guidance. We do a lot of neuromuscular ultrasound at Wake Forest. 
I do carpal tunnel injections uh, with steroid and, and numbing with a lidocaine. Or, um, I do EMGs, obviously is a big part of my practice with nerve conduction studies. We do skin biopsies to look for a small fiber neuropathy. Uh, we do lumbar punctures, Botox for our, um, migraine and spasticity, hemifacial spasm. So a big part of my practice is procedural. Wow. What traits do you think lead to being a good neuromuscular physician? Oh, that's a funny question, just because I think if you had a room of people, you could probably pick out definitely the neurologist, right? But maybe <laughs> Wearing bow ties. <laughs> yeah, we're very nerdy, <laughs> pensive. Uh, we like to think a lot. Uh, we like complex things, complex anatomy. Uh, and and maybe some tangible aspects too. So I want to know what part of the nerve is damaged exactly. Is it the axon? Is it the myelin? How fast is it going? Uh, then I want to see it with the nerve conduction study, the EMG, and then I'm going to put an ultrasound probe on it and see it some more. So we we like to have a look at complex anatomy, diagnose, talk to patients about it. Yeah, it's not a quick, I would say, you know, it's not something you come in, you're, you know, it's like, oh, you're either, you have this or you don't, you know, it's complicated. And so we have to stay with our patients through the journey and kind of explain every step of the way. A lot of the time, it's not Every patient is going to be different, and we're going to tailor that approach, which is like a lot of medicine, but I think particularly in neurology and with neuromuscular disease, it's not always black and white. It's gray and white. Yes, it's gray. <laughs> <laughs> gray matter, white matter, neurology gray. jokes. Um, speak, to the, speak to the neurology joke about localizing. You talked about localizing, but not being able to do anything about it once you localize it. Yeah, I think that's a, um, a misperception. There is a lot of treatment, specifically now with a lot of genetic therapies coming out, a whole slew of medications we can use to treat disease. When we think of neuropathic pain and other forms of uh, pain in neurology, you know, headache and otherwise, um, disc disease, things like that. That brings in a whole, you know, holistic, integrative approach that we can offer patients. Lifestyle medicine is big. Um, so there is a lot of medicine treatments and other treatments for neurologic disease. So I, there aren't many times in my career where I feel like I can't do anything for a patient. Even if it's walking with them in trying to figure out that diagnosis or find out what it is because the ultimate goal I really think depends on the person and some people don't want to take a pill and have everything fixed for some people that healing journey is figuring out what's going on how does this affect my family how can I live with this is my doctor going to be with me are they listening to me um, so I see some really powerful examples of that in my practice, just counseling patients. You know, even if I can't f 
figure it all out in one visit and fix everything. Uh, that's not really a lot of people's goal. Um, now, having said that, of course, you know, we have, there are cures for epilepsy. You know, we have medications and treatments for MS. You know, we have um, a lot of, a lot of good treatments. So I feel, you know, I feel empowered. I feel like my patients can be empowered um, with their neurologic problems and in just maintaining their neurologic health. It's not always a, you know, a big neurologic disorder that they're coming with. What other specialties as you were going through your, your either medical school training or even as a neurologist looking at different fellowships, were there any other specialties that were in the running or pulling you away from what you ultimately decided on? That's a good question. So I'm a happy person and I like everything. <laughs> so I, I knew with that whole story I told you about neuroanatomy, I knew the complexity and the, just the interest I had. I knew it was going to be neurology. Uh, but I loved my prelim medicine year. I mean, almost every everything I rotated through, um, I did not. I knew <laughs> surgery was not for me, even though I do like the the whole procedure thing. Um, that sterile field and <laughs> <laughs> just my um, my actually my scrubs fell down the first time I did. <laughs> a surgical as a student the first time I went to surgery it was like total disaster um yeah I broke the sterile field my pants fell off I just knew it wasn't for me (laughs) but but it was actually really funny and and definitely in retrospect but um so I knew surgery wasn't it I loved all medical specialties I really liked and I find this to be kind of a pattern too um hematology oncology I found that somewhat in some ways similar to neurology, maybe the complexity, maybe um, the diversity of diseases. But I've talked to other people who say that they also like hemonc um, in addition to neurology. I like nephrology rotation. Um, I, I really liked a lot of it. The, I didn't love the acuity. You know, I'm not a neurointensivist. I'm not that that's not really my thing. I, I kind of like more bread and butter um, ways to look at preventative medicine too. But nothing that was strong enough to pull you away. Nope. Nothing could pull. I don't, could not be anything else in this life other than a neurologist. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't always, you know, it wasn't always that clear, but now as just, we talked about personality and over time, this is it. What sort of diseases, pathologies are are you treating on a day-to-day basis? So my bread and butter um, neurology practice is a lot of um, peripheral neuropathy, a lot of neuromuscular junction um, disorders, specifically myasthenia gravis. Um, People come with cervical disc disease, lumbar disc disease, weakness, uh, either due to that or another neuromuscular disease. So it could be um, a referral for motor neuron disease, ALS or an ALS variant. Um, I'm an adult neurologist, so I don't see, you know, children who have um, muscular dystrophies, but we do have patients with adult muscular dystrophies, um, whether it's myotonic dystrophy is a common one, limb girdle disease, and then in my some of my general neurology practice, uh, headaches, migraines, that is always, you know, 
um, around. People, we get a lot of referrals for headaches. And I think that's increasing recently just with levels of stress. I think there's a lot of dietary influence there. Uh, but at the same time, what's exciting is that there's also good treatments and good counseling options. So most days, even if it's, even if it's difficult news, even if you know I have a neuromuscular patient and they have a diagnosis, it's going to be you know, challenging to talk to them about, challenging to treat. It's going to be chronic, potentially, over time. I am able to instill hope in them, offer them you know, all the different treatments, walk with them in that path. It's very rewarding. A lot of people will choose a specialty because they like the workup of the diseases of that specialty. What percentage of the patients that you're seeing come to you already with a diagnosis of ALS or myasthenia or something like that, and you're just doing the the follow-up care? A lot. (laughs) So I would say about 80% of our patients come in with having seen somebody, whether it's another neurologist, a primary care doctor, somebody that has, you know, labeled them or thought that they have a certain diagnosis. Now, something that I I really harp on um, with education, I always have students, residents, fellows in my clinics, um, is to almost, you know, go in blind. It doesn't really matter what somebody else has said because today is today and they're clearly here in our office, we have an opportunity. So we always question the diagnosis, um, whether, you know, right or wrong. We don't know what was happening when the patient was in that person's office. And so we look at how the patient was diagnosed, what was the workup, what were the labs, the CK, what did the EMG report show? And do we think, you know, from a critical standpoint, you know, is this what we would have measured are these the specific nerves on the nerve conduction study is this the emg that is really helpful um, for this disease process and so we had to take a i always teach you know to take a critical look at how this diagnosis was made because you know some of the treatments for this are are heavy hitters whether it's immunosuppression and and even just the labeling of a diagnosis so we want to make sure and sometimes we're able to take that diagnosis away you know take that label away and you know a lot of times for for a better one um als can be difficult at first to diagnose uh, whether it's just slow in presentation there are different mimics and so that's a you know a big thing to tell somebody they have als if they don't uh, or vice versa tell them they have some something else when they actually have als so uh, again we take our time with it critically look at all the information and a lot of times repeat some of the tests until we both feel the patient and the physician feel good. Okay, this is what we're dealing with and this is the next step. Describe a typical day for you. My days are awesome. (laughs) I have typically, every single day is different. And that, for me, I do that on purpose just because I like to be doing different things at different times. But I'll just, a typical day might be um, morning clinic, like a neuromuscular clinic. And I work with the neuromuscular fellows in that. And that's probably, you know, 
one of my favorite parts of my job is to be able to uh, watch that in the fellow or the trainee, like watch that process of, okay, you know, I've been doing this for five years now, but post fellowship. And so, you know, I I pretty much know what's going on and already have it formulated in my head. And um, I enjoy connecting with the patient, but it's really cool to see it click in someone that I'm working with as far as a learner. Um, And so I see anywhere from five to eight patients in a half day. And then the rest of the day could be spent on giving a lecture to students or um, going to, I also practice integrative neurology. And so I do a lot of work with uh, education there, uh, curriculum design, nutrition counseling. uh, and And I also do a little bit of research. But at this point, I'm mainly clinical. What was the decision for you to stay in academic medicine versus going out to the community? That one, again, was a pretty easy one for me because I love, you know, you've heard me say several times, I love the educational aspect of this. I love teaching, the mentorship. For me, that's what it's all about. You know, medical training is challenging. (laughs) I don't have to tell you that. It's very (laughs) difficult. And that experience, my personal experience with that, um, you know, stayed with me. It was a little traumatizing. It was really hard. And so for me, the educational standpoint is so redeeming. Like I can be there with the student or whoever it is that I'm talking to and tell them, you know, look, I remember how this was, this part's really important. You know, let's talk about this, whether it's a, a personal or a neurologic you know, case that we're learning about, like a personal issue or a neurologic issue. And I couldn't not have that part of it. Just like, you know, I could not have the neurology. The other thing about academics that I love is I can see a really complicated neuromuscular patient and I can talk about it for two hours with the, <laughs> with the patient, with the student, with the nurse, with whoever else wants to talk, with the colleagues. We have We can have a conference about the case. You know, you can talk about it forever. And um, I I really like private practice. (laughs) Not so much. Um, And, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who went to private practice and they're perfectly happy doing that. So I think it's it's a personality thing. But Mm -hmm. basically, if I were in practice, I would like introduce myself and then I would have to get out of the room because my time (laughs) would be up and I would have no one to talk to about it. And so, you know. Not for me. What percentage of the patients, since you do a lot of procedures, what percentage of the patients that you see are you actually doing procedures on? You know, I also have a few sessions of EMG lab and procedures. So apart from my clinic, I have sessions where I just do procedures. Uh, and that that's all I do. And then, so I separate my procedure clinic with my patient clinic. Now in my, you know, private, you know, patient clinic, I would call it where we're just seeing patients, probably about 40%, I would guess we're going to order a procedure on some form of, you know, something with a needle. (laughs) Most of the time, something with a needle, we're going to order that. And then I'll put them in my separate kind of either procedure or EMG lab clinic. And, And that's about, half and half clinic procedure 
ratio. And I'm assuming that your procedure clinic, the everybody that you're seeing there could be referred by a primary care doctor. They're not necessarily your patient. Right. So a lot of them are my patients um, or people that I've just kind of met in the community, even neurologists within my department, you know, my colleagues, not everybody in neurology likes procedures. And so since I love them, I'm kind of known for that. And so my colleagues will refer um, the different procedures we talked about to me like, oh, hey, Vanessa, will you do the skin biopsy for me or whatever, this LP, this block, this carpal tunnel injection. Uh, and so I'm easily able to kind of work them in to the schedule. So it's a good, you know, the referral base is good. And I like being the person that, you know, is known for, for doing those procedures. Do you have to take a lot of call? I don't. I hardly take any call. And the call I take is voluntary. I know that sounds crazy, but I um, still do a little bit of inpatient service and that that's where I take call. And I do that because of the teaching aspect. Our um, call isn't mandatory. It's a voluntary process. So um, I do four weeks per year of general inpatient neurology, which a lot of that is actually neuromuscular uh, with things like um, cases with myasthenic crisis, Guillain-Barre, um, transverse myelitis. And so that is a, an opportunity for me to, again, be exposed to the residents and do a lot of bedside teaching, physical exam review and coaching. I do something called clinical coaching where I actually am partnered with a third year medical student and it changes like every block. Um, it, a lot of medical schools have this model now. And so I take them under my wing and I kind of go and see patients with them and watch them do histories and interviews. And then we specifically have a feedback session right afterwards. Uh, so the call again that I take is, is home call. And uh, I just have taken that as a junior faculty um, just to keep, keep fresh and keep up with the educational part of things. Do you feel like you have good work-life balance? I sure do try. <laughs> I would say I was in this conference the other day, a workshop for faculty talking about like our strategic plan and our goals and all these things. And the goal I came up with, which was kind of funny to me, you know, I wrote down this first, I wrote down this goal that was like pioneer education in neurology and integrated. It was a very formalized goal. And then I scratched it out and I did a few tries. And finally, what I came up with is my goal is to show up at work and do something that's so fun that it doesn't feel like work and then go home and be at home. And that's really my goal. I mean, to use my training to do something I'm passionate about and love feel good about it. And then to go home and to, you know, be able to have that part of my life be just as important because I think a lot and myself included, I mean, I think a lot of people struggle at, you know, you're not an MD all the time. It's important to, you know, be whatever other role you play in your life and to be able to be just as kind of, in that as much as we are in the MD role, which most of us do very well, that first part, but then the transition is challenging. 
because we, we want to just sweep in. And, you know, I go home and somebody has a, <laughs> a ankle pain and I want to get, you know, musculoskeletal on it. <laughs> I want to diagnose it. And I, and I forget. It's like, okay, just, <laughs> just be, you know, Vanessa, the <laughs> whoever it is right now. You don't have to be the end. You don't have to fix everything. Yeah. How competitive is neuromuscular fellowship? I would say right now it's not very competitive in the sense that a lot of programs are looking for uh, neuromuscular fellows and trying to recruit, uh, you know, good fellows. And so there have been some changes in reimbursement in the last uh, five years or more in um, neuromuscular medicine, specifically with EMG reimbursement. So I don't know if that motivates, you know, people not to necessarily go into neuromuscular medicine. Um, it shouldn't because, as you know, in medicine, if you're not loving what you do, it doesn't matter at all what you're reimbursed or how much you're getting paid mm-hmm. um, if, you, if you're not into it. So, but I think that may have somewhat of an influence. And so I don't, I wouldn't consider it a very competitive fellowship. I think it's a very awesome fellowship. Do you see any negative bias towards DOs in the field? I don't. Um, we, you know, they, DOs definitely have our current uh, fellow, at least one of them. We, many of our fellows have been um, DO trained in our, in our residence. And, you know, they, DOs bring a lot to the table, especially with the uh, manipulation, musculoskeletal component, anatomical component. Um, they have a lot, a lot to offer and a lot to bring to neuromuscular medicine. It's a unique background. Um, I'm not a DO, but just <laughs> hearing from other people that I work with, it's, it is beneficial to have that. Once you are neuromuscular trained, are there other opportunities to further subspecialize? Yes. So if you, most people will just do either, you know, neuromuscular fellowship, either with research or most people just do neuromuscular fellowship one year. Um, Some people will do a clinical neurophysiology fellowship with several varying months of neuromuscular EMG training. Um, If you're interested in something specific after that, it's, it's normally within your fellowship that you're going to get that training. But uh, in rare cases, I've known people who will go back and, and look at something specific within um, neuromuscular medicine. But basically, it's a year of fellowship. And the different things that people might be interested in within that can be, you know, you might spend more time doing EMG. You might spend more time um, looking at neuromuscular junction disorders. Like I mentioned, neuromuscular ultrasound is really an emerging field that more and more, that's something I teach at, at workshops and at uh, meetings. And more people are wanting that training. And so there's different courses you can go to for that. Uh, the muscular dystrophy, you know, you can, the MDA association, you can spend more time in that too. But typically it's just the one year fellowship and hopefully you get that training during that year. 
what does the the full path look like from graduating medical school to being a neuromuscular neurologist? So you do your first year, you know, your transition year, your medicine year as your first year of residency where you're looking at all the specialties. And then, you know, you have three years of neurology where most programs, it depends, but are front-loaded where your PGY2 year, you're taking a lot of inpatient call, you're seeing a lot of acute stroke, uh, you know, high-acuity neurology. And then it tends to, most programs then tend to, you know, get more clinical. And then, you, and then you might have the exposure to EMG. So it's rare to have EMG exposure early on in neurology residency, although there are definitely programs where they're able to do that. And then after uh, the three years of neurology, you go into your year of fellowship. Sometimes people do two years, uh, especially if you're interested in research opportunity. It's part of the problem with the EMGs, I would assume EMGs are mostly an outpatient procedure and most residency training is inpatient. Yeah. As far as getting exposed to it early on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Most programs really, I mean, to be honest, what it is is most programs don't have the luxury of having a PGY2 in the outpatient EMG setting, just like you said. Yeah. What do you wish primary care providers, whether it's internal medicine, family practice, whoever's referring to you, what do you wish they knew more about the diseases that you treat to help them with their patients? That's a great question. The one thing I really, when I see referrals from primary doctors, what I really wish that they would know or focus on is important for medical training is the neurologic exam. So when I take a referral, you know, over the phone, let's say, you know, someone in the community calls me or someone, you know, has a neurologic question, which is essentially the same as a referral, but I'm actually able to speak to the person. So I get a different perspective. They'll, I'll say, they'll describe a neuromuscular disease to me. And I may say, you know, what are their deep tendon reflexes doing? And I, (laughs) And I always get, I mean, these are people who have been training, you know, practicing forever. They'll say, well, I was never too good at that. <laughs> and I, I didn't really learn that. And that's a travesty. That's Better a travesty. than making up an answer. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yes. Do not lie. <laughs> Number one, do no harm. Do not lie. Yeah. Uh, but so I really, you know, it's really super important. That's where um, clinical coaching is, I think, really helpful for students. But getting your neurologic exam down, no matter what you're doing, it just literally does not matter what specialty you're going into, a neurologic mm-hmm. exam is so important. And basic things, I mean, the whole neurologic exam is important. Of course, I'm biased, but you know, definitely you have to learn how to do reflexes. And always when students tell me like, oh, I'm not really good at that. I'm like, Nope, you're not allowed to say that you are good at it. It's super easy. We're going to do it right now until you know how to do it. You know, we're going to learn all the reflexes. And so you can't say that. <laughs> yeah. Yet. The, 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 the key word is yet. You're not good at it yet. <laughs> what is a, a good resource for a student to learn that whether it's a any special YouTube videos that you've seen or, or books out there for it? I love um, Blumenfeld's Clinical Cases. He, that's a, you know, a, a book where you just read about the exams, but that's, that's the first start. 
uh, and then actually practicing practice that you know with your your friends with your family and then actually going to you know having your neurology rotation everybody needs to have some form of neurology exposure and medical training if you don't have a rotation neurologists love to do <laughs> neurologic exams and have a neurologist watch you do it coach you through it at least once you know you can record that you can take notes on that but it is so it's a neurology resident would be happy to do that too. It's essential. And so, and so that's kind of my big pet peeve, people not knowing if, if the patient has a Babinski, I don't know if they have reflexes, you know, and these are things like, well, do they have Guillain-Barre? I'm on the phone and I'm like, well, do they have Guillain-Barre? Do they have a spinal cord lesion? Are they, you know, what is the level of sensory loss? If, if it's a spinal cord lesion, so many times people don't correctly check. And it, it's not that complicated. Um, but it's just a matter of education. It's a matter of learning that and practicing it. So I can't stress that neuro- learning the neurologic exam early in your training enough. Yeah. What other specialties do you work the closest with? We work with neurosurgery. We work with um, orthopedics a lot for as far as... Um, Carpal tunnel, you know, is huge uh, entrapment, neurop- the most common entrapment neuropathy. So uh, the hand surgeons, uh, physiatry, um, PM&R doctors, whether it's a referral to them or uh, from them, and primary care physicians a lot of times get the process started with whatever neurologic problem the patient's having, and then we... Uh, we also work with rheumatologists uh, at times with um, certain neuromuscular disorders like inflammatory myopathies, for example. Um, and those are the main those are the main people that we work with. Whether it's going into industry or other uh, opportunities, are are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine? For neuromuscular specialists, blasphemy. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm. That's not really something I have much experience with. Just from, um, you know, been an academic since my initial career, but I don't know of industry opportunities. We certainly have neurologists who are more interested in things like advocacy, uh, administration within the hospital. I think that's more like a, a general, you know, kind of personality trait, whether you like that administrative role or not, not necessarily unique to neurology. There's definitely a lot, a big split between a clinical role and a, a research role. There's a lot of um, clinical and basic research opportunities in neurology and specifically neuromuscular medicine. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into your neuromuscular training? Probably if I knew how it would be now, I'd be much more reassured. You know, I think everything feels very intimidating when you're in training and you don't see how it can be. And if I could see this practice that I have going on, kind of uniting the neuromuscular medicine with integrative medicine with 
education and mentorship, I'd be really relieved. Like, wow, okay, one day this is all going to make sense. It's all going to come together and I'm really going to love what I'm doing. Mm. And this training will all be worth it. I think we've had some surprises in the field uh, with, again, with genetic therapies, with Spinraza, um, the medication. Nusinersen. Yes, Nusinersen. For for, uh, intrathecal administration for SMA. Uh, These are some new things on the horizon that we didn't know about when I was in training. So there's some exciting developments, but... I, th- I mean, from a personal standpoint, I'd be surprised at looking at myself as, you know, when I was a fellow looking at me now, I'd be surprised how fulfilling neurology can be, how fulfilling neuromuscular medicine can be, and how far you can really go. If you just one day at a time, you just <laughs> keep going, keep working, and you can end up landing your dream job. What do you like the most about being a neuromuscular neurologist? I love my, I'm a people person. I love my colleagues. I love our section, the chance to be able to work with the neuromuscular fellows. We have two fellows per year. And so we really get to be a part of, you know, intimately in their learning. uh, And that is so rewarding for me. So being able to make a difference in my patients' lives while educating is awesome. What do you like the least? Uh, paperwork. <laughs> All the documentation. This isn't, I don't think this is unique to neuromuscular medicine at all, but um, just having to, you know, the easiest part, the best part, and the easiest part of my job is talking to patients, figuring out the neurologic diagnosis and treating it. That's easy. <laughs> you can, you know, you can do that all day long, but actually implementing it, Getting, you know, the whole rigmarole with getting the right people in the room, coordinating the referrals, scheduling. These are all kind of enigmatic practices. I don't know how it happens. And so there's just, you know, medicine, unfortunately, has some um, pitfalls with kind of bureaucratic processes that isn't, you know, what what you want to be doing. And so does a lot of life. Okay. Everything has its, um, the thing that, that isn't awesome about your job. And so I try and minimize that by building a good team, you know, fostering, having meetings with everyone and saying, okay, you know, every person is essential. I'm only as good as my support staff and making the, letting them know that. And so we all have to work you know, really uh, intricately as a team. And that's how things run smoothly when we communicate and we tell each other what's going on. Uh, and that way we can, we can work more seamlessly. Uh, otherwise, it can be quite frustrating <laughs> if you order a test, for example, and it gets denied and, you know, you, you know the person needs it. You mentioned a couple medications. What other major changes do you see coming to the specialty, whether it's new medications or technologies or just the way things are practiced? So one big thing now is, you know, for muscle diseases, traditionally we have done our EMG testing and 
muscle biopsies in certain cases. But now with some of the genetic testing, we're going to be able to, I think, you know, just talk to a patient, send off a gene test. Hopefully it won't cost a million dollars and you may not be needing to have a muscle biopsy or potentially, you know, uh, other neurodiagnostic testing. We're not exactly there right now. But I think, you know, and hopefully more innovations and drug therapies will be coming out um, for treatment also. If you had to do it all over again, would you still choose neuromuscular medicine? Absolutely. We, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about it later. I would, the caveat, neuromuscular medicine with integrative medicine. I think those, those two have to go hand in hand for me. Uh, is what makes sense. But yeah, I, I love it. I love the patient population, trainees, and my colleagues. Uh, and it, it's something, you know, you can tailor to what you're interested in. And if you know what that is in your own life, then you can ask for that, go for that, and you can really make your neuromuscular practice really rewarding. Any last words of wisdom for a student listening to this going, wow, neuromuscular medicine sounds really cool. What, what would you recommend they do or encourage them to, to look into? I would say, you know, if you like neuroanatomy, if you've done a neurorotation, um, or even if you think you might like it, you know, if you're just curious, um, whether you have a neurology interest group or for example, I have students just email me randomly. I've never met them. And they just say, I might be interested in neurology. Can I come shadow you? Uh, and I'm very open to that. And, I, you know, there's probably somebody at your institution or uh, that would be happy to share, you know, either shadow or tell you what it's like to be in neuromuscular or neurology. And so take advantage of that, especially if, you, if you're thinking, that's what you want to do. And again, if neurology is challenging, neuromuscular medicine is, it's challenging. We don't go into these things because they're easy. And so don't be my other advice or, you know, would say it would be, it's don't get discouraged by that. And I have students tell me it's so hard. I don't think I can do it. And it's like, well, but you like it and you're dedicated to it. Uh, It's a complex thing, but you know, you got to, know yourself and know what you're interested in and just go for it. The people will support you there. All right, there you have it. Again, that was Dr. Vanessa Baute talking about her love of neuromuscular medicine as a neurologist. One of the biggest takeaways for me during this interview was how much she loves procedures and as a neurologist is finding the ability to do procedures. Neurology typically isn't considered a very procedure-heavy field, but she has found a niche for herself doing these procedures because that's what she loves to do. So if you're thinking about something and you're disappointed because it's not very procedure-heavy, think again. You may be able to find a niche for yourself and do the procedures you want while also seeing the pathologies and treating the patients that you want. We have some great guests coming up, including psychiatry and neurosurgery, among others. If you have a great guest for me, if you know somebody who would be a great guest, maybe they're your aunt or your uncle or your mom or your dad or your own physician, shoot me an email, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. 
and introduce me to him or her, and we'll try to get them on the podcast. I hope this was helpful for you. I hope you have a great day. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so it comes to your phone every week without a hitch. I'll see you next time here at Specialty Stories.